Good morning, everyone. A very, very warm welcome uh, to you all to our service uh, this morning. We're also blessed this morning to have Adrian Reynolds uh, come to speak to us this morning. Uh, Adrian is head of national ministries at the FIEC, and uh, he will be uh, continuing our series as we work through Ephesians, and he'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. However, before we start our service formally, let's just take a moment to, to still our own hearts. Uh, to be mindful uh, that we come into the presence of a truly holy living God and we offer this time to him now as an act of worship. So let's just uh, uh, still our hearts uh, for a moment. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have drawn us uh, together uh, to worship you this morning. I do pray that uh, you would help us put down the distractions that we have in our minds and turn our hearts uh, toward you. Be at work in our hearts and in our minds by your spirit that we might see more of your majesty and glory, your love for us and and of our desperate need for you. In Jesus' name, amen. The reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And the title is Made Alive in Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you so much, Anne, for reading to us, and thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Um, my name's Adrian. As Sam said earlier, I work for the FIEC, which is, if you don't know, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, of which Long Grendon is a part. So actually, you're my employers. 
So I've, when I'm summoned to come, I have to come and I have to be nice. But it's a great joy to be here. Um, I, just to warn you, I do have a cough, which is not COVID. Um, I had COVID about a month ago and um, I don't have COVID now, but I can't shake the cough. And probably some, some of you know what that's, that's like. So if I suddenly have a coughing moment in the sermon, you'll know why that is. I'm not trying to turn church into a super spreader event. Um, I just am trying to rein in my voice. Why don't we pray as we come to God's word? We want to praise you, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit breathed out these words that are before us. Thank you that your Spirit has preserved them down the ages. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your Spirit has given help to those who have translated them in a language, in a way, so that we can understand them. And we need your Spirit now. For these words will be just words on a page, lest your spirit comes and brings them life. So may they be life to us as your spirit is at work in Jesus name. Amen. I wonder what your salvation story is. Every believer has a salvation story, don't they? Well, we often talk about it. Tell us about how you became a Christian. You might like to ask me mine later on. And even if you're not a Christian and you're with us today, you probably know someone who is. That's why you're here. And they'll have a story. Some of those stories perhaps might be spectacular. But for the most part, those stories will be extraordinarily unremarkable, won't they? There'll be very ordinary kinds of stories. Yes, we all have a story to tell, but most of us, um, most of us were not murderers, I'm guessing. I know we're near midsummer and all that, um, but I, I doubt actually that Long Crendon is a hotbed of the underworld. So most of us probably had very respectable lives. Perhaps one or two didn't, but most of us had very respectable lives. And our salvation story, whilst being very personal and precious to us, perhaps isn't overly spectacular but what about this for a testimony let me read you this testimony and see what you make of this these are the words spoken by a man i place all my confidence in the lamb who made atonement for my sins may god have mercy on my soul that's a pretty clear testimony, isn't it? If someone was being, is that the baptistry there underneath you, Colin? If someone was being baptized and they gave a little word of testimony and they read out, I place all my confidence in the lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. You'd be cheering. You'd be cheering that person on, wouldn't you? Through the waters of baptism. But you may be shocked to know who spoke those words. Let me tell you that the story of Henry Gorecker. Henry Gorecker was a, a U.S. Army chaplain. He um, came from a part of America where the native language was German. He was a German speaker. But he decided he would serve in the Second World War as a chaplain, not, not because he was militaristic or he particularly believed in the cause, but he was an evangelist employed by a church. He described himself as a soul winner, quite an old-fashioned expression. He wanted to win people for Christ. And so he went off to war to be a chaplain, not because he particularly felt moved by the cause, but because he wanted to win souls. And he saw in the U.S. Army lots of needy souls. Well, towards the end of the war, after the war, he was approached by his commanding officer and he was asked, will you go and be the chaplain to the Protestant prisoners at the Nuremberg war trials? 
very famous trials where Nazi prisoners were, those who were still alive, were put on trial. You may know about it. And he deliberated for a while because it was known by then what terrible crimes these men had committed. But he came to a sense of peace about it because he said, no, they're souls that need to be won for Christ. And so he agreed to go. And he spent time with each of the Protestant prisoners. His, his memoirs, which are partly included in this book called War and Grace, are extraordinary. Eight, eight of those 26 Protestant Nazi prisoners were won for Christ. And those words that I read you were actually the words of Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was the Nazi foreign minister, who, who had been at the center of the Nazi war machine who had been involved in those extraordinary and awful and heinous decisions to obliterate millions of people and to pursue war at all costs. And yet, Henry Gorecka ministered to him, shared the gospel with him, and over a period of time, he went from cynicism to faith. Eventually, speaking those words, actually, as he went to the gallows. Now, how does that make you feel? I know how it makes me feel. Does it make you feel a little uncomfortable? A little bit scandalous, isn't it? It's a little bit offensive, or not a little bit. It's extraordinarily offensive at one level that that someone who could be behind that that sort of war machine in a war where 40 to 50 million people died, most of them innocents. How on earth? Should he be allowed that grace? How on earth should he be welcomed into the loving arms of a saviour? And how is it that of those 40 to 50 million, if they died without Christ, that they are facing the consequences of rebellion, whilst von Ribbentrop, who sent them to their death, in effect, is enjoying heaven and glory? It's extraordinary. It's outrageous. Scandalous. Almost too difficult to contemplate. But friends, that is the wonder of grace, and in fact the scandal of grace for every one of us. We were praying about Putin earlier. Should Putin turn to Christ, his story will be the same. Pray that he does. Should Kim Jong-un, supreme leader in North Korea and murderer of many Christians, obliterator of churches, should he turn to Christ? Pray that he does. His story will be the same. And when you put it in those terms, not only does the gospel seem scandalous, but the danger is we essentially stop believing it. If we think there are some people who are beyond the gospel, beyond saving, then we stop believing the enormity and the power of the gospel. Can God's grace be that extensive? Yes, it can. Can God's love extend even to the worst of sinners? Yes, it can. And the message of Ephesians 2, this little section that Anne read for us, is not only yes, it can, but actually it sets our thinking right about ourselves. It's only in understanding this, friends, that we will give God the glory he deserves. If you are a believer this morning, believing in the gospel of grace, it's it's only in grasping this truth that you will exalt the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will magnify, lift up, make big the mercy of Christ and give him the glory he deserves. And perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. Perhaps you've just been brought along reluctantly, perhaps, or perhaps you're thinking about Christianity. It's only in grasping these truths in Ephesians chapter 2 that you will be saved. Let me show you then, first of all, every person's story. This is verses 1 to 3. Every person's story. Our, Our natural view of life is this, isn't it? You have to earn what you get. You have to work for it. And if we're honest, we might not want to admit this in church, but if we're honest, we're always a little bit jealous of those who don't have to work for what they have. I don't know whether, I'm sure you didn't because you're all very godly people, but I don't know whether just for a brief moment, just a very brief, tiniest moment, you're a little bit jealous of the person who won £184 million this week on the National Lottery. Uncomfortable laughter, because you're thinking, yes, the person next to me was a little bit jealous. I wasn't, I'm righteous, I'm fine, but the person next to me. Just for a moment... The idea of winning something, of getting something with very little outlay, that's quite attractive. But for the most part, we know we have to work for stuff, don't we? And so if you have children or have had children, you know that you have to get them to work hard at school so they can get the grades they need, so they can go for the the jobs they want or the university course they want to pursue. Or for those of you who are in work, we know that we need to work hard to be noticed and perhaps gain the right promotion. Perhaps you're enjoying the fruits of retirement, the fruits of hard work. You've, you've put the hard work in and now you're able to some measure to enjoy the provision in retirement. But friends, spiritually speaking, hard work is useless. Spiritually speaking, hard work is useless. Look at verses one to three. These verses tell every person's story. Yours and mine too. Paul starts by addressing you as though he's talking to other people, but it becomes clear by the end of verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath or objects of wrath, that he's actually talking about every person. Every man and woman shares the same story. And it's a story of death, isn't it? It's a story of death. Death because of transgressions and sins. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Two very similar words, transgressions and sins. I don't think Paul is using them in a, in a technical way to say there are these kinds of sins and these kinds of sins, the kind of transgression box and the, the sin box. I think he's just piling up words to explain that the charge sheet, if you like, that is against every person and leads to death. Paul is simply making the point that all of us are in the same boat, all dead because of transgressions and sins. And to be dead here is obviously not physical death, not at this point. It's it's a spiritual death, which in many ways is worse. It's an alienation from God. It's a separation from him. It's death without God on our side. And as we shall see in just a moment, that's a terrible place to be. Now, of course... I'm not suggesting that all of us are Nazi war criminals. None of us are. Their crimes are extraordinarily heinous. But all of us share this story. 
dead in our transgressions and sins, whatever they may be. And all of us, therefore, it takes us to the same place. Every person's story is the same. Your story, my story, we are dead. Now, what has brought about this death? It's our transgressions and sins. And these transgressions and sins have come about because of the environment in which we live. So if you have a look down at verse 2 and 3, you'll see that Paul explains the situation that everybody is in using three different, three different forces that are at work upon us and upon every person. And I wonder if you can see them. First of all, the environment in which we live. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The world is a place of sin. Now, I know there is extraordinary capacity for goodness too, and we've seen some of that, haven't we? It's it's interesting, especially over the beginning of lockdown, we saw some of that capacity for goodness. But isn't it interesting how quickly it dissipates? Have you noticed that? Do you see how quickly people lose heart in clapping for the NHS? Lots of enthusiasm the first week, the second week. By the tenth week, there aren't so many people on the doors, and then it kind of fizzles out. Do you you see how quickly people revert to type? And in the wider world, well, you only have to spend one day looking at the news, reading about Ukraine, reading about Afghanistan, reading about Syria, reading about Lebanon, Today, having general elections and the division there is there. Reading about Buffalo in New York and that terrible crime that was committed yesterday. You don't need to look far, do you? To see that the environment in which we live is evil, it's cruel, it's malicious, it's self-serving, it's grabbing, and so on. It's the environment in which we live. Secondly, there is a powerful spiritual enemy We heard about that just in the prayer. It was alluded to. And there it is in verse 2. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Uh, The ruler of the kingdom of the air here. Paul is talking about the devil. He he talks about him in this way because in in Ephesians, that the heavenly places and what's going on in the spiritual places is a really important theme. And and the ancients believed that they lived on the earth and there were these powerful forces in the air above the earth. And that's why Paul uses this little phrase, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the devil. It's not that that everybody is devil possessed or demon possessed, but he is at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, every person's story is that in some way they come under his influence. He's the ruler it's like I come under the influence of the queen. It doesn't sort of dominate everything I do, but the crown and the laws it makes, well, they, they, they influence how I behave. And so it is every person's story. It's, it's the environment in which we live. It's the fact that we have a powerful spiritual enemy who is against God and is inducing people to, to reject him and to follow evil ways. Now, those are both external forces, aren't they, working upon every person. But verse 3 brings the blame much closer to home. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature or our flesh 
and following its desires and thoughts. In other words, the problem is not just external, it's internal also. And probably Paul is thinking that these factors all come together to make us people of transgressions and sins and therefore to cause us before God to be dead. That's a pretty comprehensive picture of the human condition, isn't it? The environment in which we live, a powerful enemy and an, a sinful heart, a sinful nature. This is, by the way, what the, um, the first writers of the Anglican prayer book used to call the world, the flesh and the devil. Not in that order. The world, the devil and the flesh here, but the same three. You see, these are the influences upon us. And those conspired against every person. So that's why this is every person's story. We can't just blame our circumstances. We can't just say, well, the devil is powerful and the world is a hard place to live in. And there are so many evil influences that are just a a click away. We can't explain away things like that. Because all of us also followed our own desires and thoughts. And so we're without excuse. We're dead. And we're to blame. And moreover, not simply to blame, but deserving, says Paul, of God's wrath. God's wrath is not a kind of suddenly that like you or I might lose our anger at something. Person in front of us isn't going quite fast enough for us to get here on time. That's that's not a it is a personal story um, from this morning. But you know that sort of you know the, the way that rage boils up inside you sometimes. It is it's not that kind of anger. God's wrath is his steady, settled, righteous, holy anger of those who reject him. And it's a terrible place to be and a terrible place to remain. Yet it is every person's story. I I think the trouble for us, if I can say this to you, is that we're we're middle of the road people. We live in a, a nice Place, middle of the road place, birds singing outside, lovely. And it doesn't really seem to describe what we were. It doesn't really seem to describe us. Joachim von Ribbentrop, yes, okay, yes. Me, no, not so much. Not only that, but if you can think back, if, if you remember to a time before you were a believer, you probably felt very much alive, not dead, quite the opposite. You were probably living in a way that you thought was full of life. But friends, we've got to make sure that we allow the Bible to describe us. Which means allowing God to describe us. The one who sees everything. The one who knows everything. We've got to allow his word to to define what we were. Because it's only then that we'll be able to grasp the enormity of what God has done. This is every person's story, one to three. But I want to show you too in verses 4 to 7, every believer's testimony. If 1 to 3 is every person's story, 4 to 7 is every believer's testimony. Because into this desperate and impossible situation stepped the God of love, grace and mercy. And verses 4 to 7 are therefore the story every believer tells. The detail will be different. I don't know how many people are here, but everyone has different detail in the story. But the story is the same. We share in the life of Christ. 
We share in the resurrection life of Christ, in fact. We were dead, but now we're alive in him. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. He sits at God's right hand, and we share that status. Do you notice there are, there are three little ideas in these verses that all are accompanied by the words, with Christ, or with him. Do you notice that as we read through? Uh, let me just emphasize for them for you. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Do you see? That Jesus has been made alive. We've been laid alive with Christ. Jesus has been raised. We've been raised with Christ. Jesus has ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. In other words, Christ's resurrection life is ours also. This is not a promise of something to come. A hope being held out in front of us. This is our reality. This is where we are today, if we're trusting in Christ. This is every believer's testimony. Now, these phrases are significant because they show not only what we are, but how those influences and powers that made us dead are overcome. Just have a think about this. If if that were not the case, we would still be in trouble. So if we were still... Under the influence of the world, if we were still under the influence of the devil, if we were still enslaved to our sinful natures, we would keep going back to being dead. So part of being made alive is that those powers, the world, the flesh, the devil, have been overcome. Just have a think about it for the moment. Made alive with Christ. That means we're changed. And because we're changed, the inner power that controlled us that dominated us, that's overcome. We're raised with Christ, which means we're elevated from this world. There's the world. We're raised with Christ. And so even though we are in the world, we're no longer of the world. We share in his resurrection life. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Um, remember I said that you have the earth and then you have the kingdom of the ruler of the air. Above that you have the heavenly realms where God is enthroned. We're up there. We're not down there in the world. We're not in this middle ground where Paul is talking about Satan ruling. We're up there above all things. So even Satan's power over us is broken. You see, Paul is not just talking about the fact that we've been made alive. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that the power of sin is is done away with. It's broken. It's overcome. And that is every believer's testimony. We are alive. And all the influences that made us dead are destroyed and demolished and diminished. And that is great news. No wonder Paul describes that in such extraordinary terms, the incomparable riches of his grace. Incomparable. I don't know about you, but I I can imagine a certain level of riches, can't you? 
you know, 184 million. I, I can kind of imagine what that is. There was a, there was a little article in the paper this morning, um, sorry, last week about about the lottery win. And as these articles do, it put it in in terms of how many houses you could buy. Long Crendon didn't feature, but it had a had a had a street in. Chelsea, how many houses could you buy in Chelsea for your 184 million? Or how many of the most expensive Rolls Royce could you buy? Or how many private jets? You can imagine a certain level of riches. But this is incomparable. We were dead. And we have been made alive. It is the extraordinary work of God's mercy and grace. Those words have some overlap between them. I think Paul here is talking about mercy in terms of mercy is, is, is being kind to someone when they don't deserve it. So you maybe could think of a court case with the judge sitting behind his, his bench and someone is found guilty and deserves a certain sentence and he lets them off. I mean, he would get into trouble for that, wouldn't he? But, but that's mercy. You don't treat someone as they deserve but but it's possible to be merciful and do it grudgingly, oh, if I must. You know, it's possible to be that kind, show that kind of mercy. Grace is more, it's more about the affection that is, is lavished, that the spirit in which something is done. Think of the prodigal son, you think of the father welcoming his son back and, and the son says, Lord, and it says, Father, I'll, I'll just be a servant in the house. And mercy would be for the father to say, okay, you can just be a servant. I'm not going to treat you as you deserve. You could, you can be a servant. That's mercy. But grace is the father running out to the son, seeing him coming and throwing his arms around him. With a smile and not with a frown. And that is how God is towards us. Of course we deserve, well, his wrath. But instead he makes us alive in his son. And friends, our our deadness, the fact that we did deserve his wrath, only serves to, to magnify the greatness of what he's done. It's not a little thing. It's a massive thing. It's incomparable in its richness. So undeserved and lavished upon us. And perhaps we just need to take a moment and take a breath. Just to, to, to gaze once again in awe and wonder upon the salvation that you and I enjoy if you're a believer. The life you have been given. The power over sin you have been given. How extraordinary. Now, why has God done such a thing? He would have been entirely within his rights, wouldn't he? And acting according to justice to leave us be. So why has he done such a thing? What's his motivation? There's two answers in those verses, four to seven, that are every believer's story. It's first of all because of his great love for us, verse four. His great love for us. What, what, has, what has moved him to make the dead alive? What has caused him to shower mercy and, and grace upon us so freely, so warmly, so affectionately? It's his love. It, it's his the fact that he's, he's moved by our plight. He wants to see us in his kingdom. He wants to welcome us home. There is nothing in us that's deserving of our salvation. But his affectionate love is undiminished by our rebellion. 
In fact, if anything, it is magnified by it. I, I sometimes think that as believers, we, we sort of assume that God has begrudgingly accepted us in. Oh, okay. Sort of a reluctance. But no, there's none of that. Rich in mercy and grace. His great love for us shines through. But second, not only is it because of his great love for us, it's so that he might demonstrate in us his incomparable riches. Do you notice that? God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, verse 6, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages, the last times, the moments now, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you and I are Christians, we are display models. We are in the, in the, in the shop window showing the extraordinary grace of God. There for all to see. There for all to marvel at. There to encourage one another. Look at the, look at the grace that's been at work in us. Amazing grace. How sweet a sound that saved a wretch like me. That's not to big me up. I was an amazing wretch. I was dead in transgressions and sins. It is to magnify him. It's to glorify him. I, I think if, if you were to ask other Christians, what, what most displays God's glory? You would often say, well, mountains. I like a mountain, me. You know, a lake, I like a lake, me. Mountains and lakes together, great combo, I like that. You know, amazing shorelines. Perhaps you're a bit more pastoral. You know, it's the fields, the rolling hills full of sheep. Oh, beautiful sights. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and I hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. Those things display God's glory. And of course they do to some measure. But within this one room is contained more of a measure of God's glory, more display of his grace and goodness and power than the whole of the Alps and Lake Annecy and all that smart place and all the rolling hills and the sheep in the fields of Middle England. Isn't that extraordinary? Not only is sin's effect overcome, death, but we are made alive with Christ. And therefore sin's power is broken. I, I think um, in, all, in all the hymns and songs we sing in church, one of my favorite little couplets is this. It's not even a couplet, it's just one line. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. See, our sin is cancelled. So we're no longer objects of wrath. And its power is broken because we share in Christ's resurrection life. And that is every believer's story. Now, it might be enough, and perhaps in terms of the time, you're wishing it was enough to finish there at verse 7. But I want to show you briefly as we finish every believer's calling. You see, the question remains, actually, how does God put his incomparable riches on display in us? How does he do that? And verses 8 to 10 give us a negative and a positive We've seen every person's story, we've seen every believer's testimony, and now we see every believer's calling. So firstly, negatively, it is not to boast. 
Verse 8 is probably the most famous verse in the book, isn't it? Let alone in this passage. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Paul's put it in here, though, for a reason. Verse 9, not by works, so that no one can boast. The fact that the whole of our salvation was a gift to us, even the faith... That caused us to believe. The fact that that was a gift to us, it was grace expressed to us in Christ Jesus, means there is nothing to boast about. And of course, if you're dead, there's nothing you can do about it. It can't be by works. If you are a frozen chicken in Sainsbury's, you cannot make yourself alive. The dead cannot bring themselves to life. It's only a gracious work of God that can bring life. And that is Paul's point. So there is no room for boasting. Now, you might think that's a strange negative to make. I I don't suppose you walked through the doors this morning thinking to yourself, clever me. Haven't I done well to get here? I, I partly thought that. That was more to do with my journey than my salvation. But actually, in terms of our salvation, we don't tend to walk through the doors, Christians, and say, I'm pretty smart believing this gospel business. I don't think many of us have that kind of attitude. But but friends, there is a subtle kind of self-confidence, isn't there, that quickly takes over as Christians. It's easy to forget how we were saved. It's easy to forget how extraordinary our salvation was. It's easy to forget how dead we were. And therefore how wonderful it is that God has made us alive. We easily forget that we were unable to do anything about our status and when that happens we minimize God's saving work we see the gospel actually as scandalous one of the tests is what you thought of that story right at the beginning of the sermon when you first read that and heard it did sorry when you first heard it were you like me when I first read it you thought that's that's outrageous if you start thinking that then you are thinking about salvation by works subtly at first, and it creeps in. That's a kind of boasting. How can God save someone like that? That's a kind of boasting, isn't it? This passage corrects us. It realigns us. We can't boast. We've got got nothing to bring to the altar and to say, here we are, Lord. Here are my good things that I've done. Here are my works. and I hope they'll make me acceptable in your sight. We've got nothing like that to bring. And that's a real help, actually, because it means we can't look down on other believers. They've not brought more to the table or less to the table than we have, because all of us have come empty-handed. We can't claim any grounds for superiority, therefore. We can't distinguish between background or ability or capacity. All of us were dead. Remember, that was every person's story. And every believer's testimony is the same. We've been made alive in Christ. So every believer's calling is identical. No room for boasting. But there is a positive application too, and that's in verse 10. We are God's workmanship, which is a creation word, by the way, God's new creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's no place for works in our salvation itself. In how we come to Christ, no room for boasting, remember. But once we are saved, there are works that he has for us to do. It's very striking, isn't it, how you use use of the same language. It's not by works, verse 9. 
your salvation. No one can boast. But we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It, it is in not boasting and doing the works that God has prepared for us that we put on display his extraordinary salvation. If you like, if you, if you go back to the shop window idea, what, what is the mannequin in the shop window wearing? You know, the, the clothes that they want to, to show to you so you're attracted into the store. It is not boasting and it is doing the good works that God has prepared for us. I wonder if um, serving recently has made you rather weary. I, I have the joy of going around quite a few different churches and one of the things I'm hearing from church leaders especially is that people are just tired after COVID. It hasn't been two and a half years off, has it? Or two years off. It's, you know, it's been hard work. People who are serving in church are tired. Trying to refill the rotors at church can be quite a burden. Perhaps it's just... You sort of felt the weight of it. And having had a, a year and a bit or two years, whatever it is, off, not being on the coffee rotor or not helping out with some activity at church, not doing the works that God has prepared for you, actually, you've quite enjoyed that. And, and maybe it's been a very necessary break. We're all overwork. It's sort of in our nature. We're overworkers, aren't we, many of us? But every believer's calling is to do the works that God has prepared for us. Maybe they're not all the same works that they were in the past. Maybe it's, I don't know, getting involved with contact. Just heard about that. You've not been involved with that before. Maybe that's a new word that God has got prepared for you. I don't know. Maybe it's something outside of the church. But our calling is not to serve out of a sense of duty or habit. It's to serve to exalt Christ. Because it puts the salvation he has given us on display. It puts... His immeasurable grace, his incomparable riches in the shop window. And that is every believer's calling. As um, Joachim von Ribbentrop went to the gallows, he turned to the chaplain, Henry Gorecker. And these are the last words he spoke to him. He said, Pastor, I will see you again. Pastor, I will see you again. Grace is scandalous, isn't it? That such a man should be assigned a place in glory. But we're not saved by works. Nor was he. And if genuine. Joachim von Ribbentrop will not only see Pastor Gorecki. He will see you and I too. That is the amazing grace of our God. That same grace and mercy. That Jesus whispered to the dying thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. Every person's story is the same, dead. Objects of wrath. Every believer's testimony is identical, alive in Christ. Power over sin. And every believer's calling is to avoid boasting and gladly and willingly put the love, grace and mercy of Christ on display as we do the works prepared for us. Let's pray, and then the music group are going to lead us in a final song. And let's have a, a moment of quiet as we reflect on what we've heard, as we rejoice in our own salvation. Perhaps if you're not yet a Christian, as you just think about what you've heard, maybe even give your life to Christ for the first time. And as we ask the Spirit to show us what are the works of service that have been prepared for us. Heavenly Father, full of mercy, 
Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Spirit of God, bringer of new life. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the power over sin that comes from being made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. Forgive us our boasting. And Spirit, please not only equip us, but show us the works you have prepared for us to do. That we might show the glory and grace and kindness of our Saviour Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, That does bring us uh, to the end of our service this morning. If the Lord has spoken to you this morning and you'd like prayer, then please do uh, take this moment and pray with the person that you came with or grab Colin, uh, Adrian or myself. It'd be a privilege uh, to pray with you. Uh, So please do pray before you go. And some words to close. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans uh, 15, uh, 13, uh, these words of encouragement. Uh, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.